by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. I consider myself more of a realist than an optimist. And in a lot of ways, I'm concerned that there's still a deep denialism about like the magnitude of the situation that we are in right now. And, you know, I, I know people are, are really looking forward to voting and trying to get Trump out, but these issues were here before Trump and we need to be prepared for uh, the reality that we're still gonna be facing these things even after November, you know? So, so I'm hopeful, but I'm also like grounded in a kind of realism about the situation. That's Bree Newsom, artist and human rights activist. She is our guest today. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Well, I am very excited about this next guest for so, so many reasons. Um, over the course of time, we've become friends and I've been to become an admirer of uh, Bree Newsom. Um, Bree Newsom Bass is an artist, an activist, and a public speaker. She's an organizer in the modern civil rights movement for the 21st century and has helped develop several nonprofit and grassroots organizations. In 2015, she attracted national attention when she scaled a flagpole at South Carolina's Capitol building to remove the Confederate battle flag in protest of systemic racism following the racially motivated murders of at Emanuel AME in Charleston, South Carolina. Her artistic work includes written uh, work, film, and performance pieces, and she is the recipient of an NWCP Image Award, among so many other hours. Bree, my sister, how are you? I'm I'm good, as as good as one can be these days with everything that's going on, and just um, honored to be talking with you again. I'm I'm equally an admirer of your work as well. Well, Bree, many people know you as the amazing sister who climbed the flagpole um, in the Capitol there in South Carolina. But uh, if beyond that, I know you are m much more layered and deep than that. And for those who don't know you, who is Bree Newsom? Yeah, I, I I would describe myself as a revolutionary. Um, I would definitely describe myself as an artist. Um, I am, I'm a human being. You know, I, I was just talking with someone the other day about how sometimes I almost feel like the term activist is insufficient, right? Because it's almost like people have come to understand this almost like a career choice or something. Like I'll have people ask me, you know, how do you become an activist, right? And what I see is uh, people who are fighting to survive. You know, I see myself as stepping into a struggle that began long before I got here, you know, and this is a struggle for our lives. This is a struggle for freedom. Um, and so I just see myself as, as a human participant in that human global struggle. Now, I've seen you on Twitter 
and you become quite the, uh, I don't know if this is the right term, if you uh, if you appreciate this, but I think you're, you're, you're kind of a, you're not just an, a Twitter activist, but you're active on Twitter with your activism. I'm going to say that correctly. Mm-hmm. So, and I've just noticed a lot of your writings, which is, I would encourage anybody who is in the movement, if you want a phenomenal follow, um, Bree Newsom is the follow. You just go there and at Bree Newsom and just check check her out because she will lay it down. But I just kind of want to ask you this question uh, off the top: um, Are you hopeful for the future? I I am hopeful for the future, and I, I think if if I weren't hopeful, I couldn't keep showing up as I do. You know, I my hope lies in the fact that. I feel that we are a product of people who have struggled in the past, right? And so when I when I look at what has been accomplished from the struggles of people in the past, I know that it's possible. And that's really kind of where, where I derive my hope from. I derive my hope from just that vision of the future world and just really believing that that is possible. Um, I also think things are really precarious. You know, I, I consider myself more of a realist than an optimist, you know, um, and and in a lot of ways, I'm concerned that there's still a deep denialism about like the magnitude of the situation that we are in right now. Um, and, you know, I, I know people are, are really looking forward to voting and trying to get Trump out. But these issues were here before Trump and we need to be prepared for uh, the reality that we're still going to be facing these things even after November. You know, so so I'm hopeful, but I'm also like grounded in a, in a kind of realism or I try to be grounded in a kind of realism about the situation. Break that down. I think that's very important because I think what you said there, if folks may just think that you're just talking about being, you know, real about, uh, as we say, keeping it real, but just being real about the moment. But you're, you're, you're talking about something much more uh, deeper than that. You're, you're talking about literally how systemic racism and it's true like racism has been with this country since the beginning. And that literally, that Trump, while terrible, it's much more deeper than that. And that we are bordering on not just fascism, but literally this country is coming apart because it was based upon white supremacy. So break that down more about who's not facing that reality. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's been, I know you mentioned like my Twitter account, like the past especially like two years, if not more, but probably the, the, the whole Trump administration, I've just been pushing back against this whole like narrative where people are like, this is not America. You know, this is not who we are. You know, th- this kind of like um, folks acting like Trump just came out of nowhere. Nobody knows where this man came from. <laughs> you know, it's like he just, he just jumped on the scene in, in 2016. Nobody has any idea Um, how he was able to come to power because what he is doing is just so antithetical to, you know, America. Well, that, that can't be true because there's no way, like if he were truly the complete opposite, right. Of, of what America is and what America has been. And like, you know, a a significant segment of the American population, he would not be in power. He would not continue to be in power, you know, through all of the things that he has done. So there's just kind of like this constant, historical revisionism, um, not really wanting to deal in the reality that America was founded in slavery and genocide, right? Um, That the institutions themselves were organized around slavery and racism. 
um, the the fact that uh, most of the the institutions, from the economy to the politics to the social order to the way that we vote to the neighborhoods that we live in to the schools, we like everything, right, was organized around racism, and until or unless like we really understand that there is no such thing as like really transforming the society. And that's why I'm like constantly pushing against this whole idea of like getting back to normal. You know, like people have this idea that, okay, we're going to vote Biden in and he's going to restore us to who we used to be. Well, now who we used to be was already a problem. You know, like, I mean, that, that, that is, again, that's just like another version of make America great again. Right. Because like the, the thing that people kept raising around that whole slogan that Trump had, make America great again. Well, what era are you talking about? What what era prior to 2020 was better for black Americans, you know, in this country? Um, even the Obama administration, we have to remember the Black Lives Matter movement began halfway through the Obama administration. Ferguson happened during Obama, Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin. So it's not like if it were as simple as just electing people who looked like us, right, to be in positions of power, we would have solved this a long time ago. So you, we got to understand like how deep, how deeply systemic and cultural and persistent uh, racism is in the organization of, of this whole society. I, I appreciate that. And I think I want I want to definitely get more into that standpoint of many people don't remember that the modern day Black Lives Matter movement, the movement for Black Lives, really was created and reinforced. Now, we all know it started way before, um, the same way you know, white supremacy started way before Trump. Uh, the movement for Black Lives started way before uh, President Obama. But during his time, during the time of a, a Black president, that was when this movement felt that it wasn't being heard. As a matter of fact, when he was first inaugurated, it was during that time when Oscar Grant was killed in Fruitvale Station in Oakland. And so it was literally that same night as he's being brought in, uh, well, as, was that, that, same, that same time frame, it was New Year's Eve, but that same time frame where people are still getting ready for inauguration, um, Oscar Grant is, is killed. And so you're right. It was, it was from the, literally from the beginning um, of 2009 all the way through. So we are, I guess I understand the standpoint of particularly white people wanting to get back to normal, whatever that, because that's also part of white privilege. But is there a part, is there a black denial as well? I think there is. <laughs> like, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I do think that there is. I think that particularly for Black Americans, and I, and I completely understand where it comes from. And I, I used to be um, much more kind of of, of that position and, and of that way of thinking. You know, in a lot of ways, we have been stripped of nationhood, right, um, as a people. And so I think there is this deep desire to want to integrate into these institutions um, to really become American, uh, you know, to like, to like be a part of the, you know, quote unquote American dream. That's really been the primary ask is just equality. You know, like people aren't even really, for the most part, haven't even been asking for vengeance. It's, it's just been like equality. Like, can we have an equal shot? Can we have full citizenship? Will you please just get your foot off of our necks? Right. And I think what I am saying is that we have to recognize that so long as the white power structure is in place, as it has existed for centuries and continues to exist, that equality can't and won't happen because the power structure itself is 
built upon our enslavement. And like they they continually remind us of that. And you're absolutely right. And that's important for people to understand, too, that this did like like what we call the, you know, movement for black lives or, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. That's really just kind of like marking this, you know, recent surge. Right. Of, of protest energy, but the struggle for black liberation, I mean, that's a centuries long struggle. And I think part of the reason why we saw this swell of activity during the Obama administration was because for a significant element of this country, they could not stand the idea of a black family in the white house. <laughs> I mean, that was like that image, that idea was so for so many people um, the opposite of their understanding of what it of what it means to be American, right? Which they equate with being white. That we saw this this like racist underbelly of of America just like you know completely expose itself. Certainly in a way that like you know I hadn't seen in my lifetime. I would say you know like I, I remember I think one of my earliest memories of really being aware of racism and police violence was the Rodney King case and you know the L.A. riots. You know. Um, but at the time that I was coming up, a lot of the image I, uh, images I saw was, you know, black people being successful, black people breaking down barriers, you know, in a lot of different areas. And then, you know, then we elected the first black president. But right away when that happened was this racist backlash. They, you know, gutted the Voting Rights Act, you know, um, Trayvon Martin case happened. It, it was it was just like this this complete reveal of who America really had always been, you know, so it's not that this isn't who we are. It's that, no, this is actually who we always have been. And we have to confront that reality. Do you think that in all reality was the Obama presidency a continuation of white privilege or was it the breaking down of white privilege? I see the Obama uh, administration as kind of a double-edged sword in some ways, because I don't think that we would be at the point that we are had that not happened. Like there was, there was, you know, we're talking a lot these days, of course, about like the limitations of, you know, the politics of representation, which is very important and something that we really have to break down. Um, at the same time, that was a very powerful image. I mean, it was. And, and I think that seeing a black family in the white house it did something for the pride of black americans i think particularly for my generation there was this sense that like we're not willing to accept a second class citizenship like we're not willing to accept anything less and it also showed us that you can't no like no matter how hard you work right no matter how many degrees you have you can be the president of the united states if you're black, they're still going to be racist against you. You know what I mean? And so I think it just kind of like made that clear for us in a whole other way. On the flip side of it, a lot of white America used that as an excuse to say, OK, well, racism is over. Right. Like, how can you guys can't complain about racism because there's a black person in the White House. Right. Or like, you know, white people would love to tell you how they voted for Obama. Well, I can't be racist because, you know, I voted for Obama. Um, and so we really had to like go through this period of like really forcing the issue. I mean, I, you can't get away with that today because I think it's just so blatant and obvious what the truth is. But, you know, there for a while, there was kind of like this idea that just because we had black people in a, you know, an elected office and in, in the most powerful elected office, that somehow we had addressed the issue of racism. And, and clearly that's not true because the material conditions for the majority of black people have not changed. You know, and that's really where the focus has to be. You know, it, it's great. Yeah. OK, it's wonderful. We have, you know, of course, we want to elect 
people to certain positions, you know, but when what we really have to look at is what is the material conditions like for the average black person? Like that should be the measure of progress, not whether we have, you know, the first black person here or the first black person there. One of the hardest things I had to do, Bree, was I, ha- I was asked to preach uh, at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, after the killing of those amazing parishioners. Um, it was hard. It was it was something that when I went there, um, which was about 90 days after, um, and standing in that pulpit and seeing the place where they were gunned down after having a prayer service, it, it, took, it, it took me a lot. And I found out why they are amazing because they were more worried about me <laughs> and making sure I was good. And I was like, now I'm going to be here for you. Um, but that happened. Um, that, that, that act of violence from a white supremacist happened also during the Obama administration. That tragic shooting took place in 2015 um, at uh, Emmanuel AME in Charleston, South Carolina. Now, you drew national attention when you climbed the flagpole in front of the South Carolina Capitol building and lowered the Confederate battle flag. So in that moment of that being kind of the end of President Obama's term, knowing all that was going on in the with the movement for Black Lives at that time, what prompted you to lower that flag? You know, how did lowering that flag make you feel? And how do you feel now kind of looking back on that moment? Yeah, that was just, that was uh, for me just an example of a moment where so many things had built up to that, right? So first of all, you got to understand that flag in South Carolina, that was first raised in the 60s, right? So when, when South Carolina raised that flag, they did it at the height of the civil rights movement. And it was a very clear statement of opposition to, you know, the sit-in movement, to the calls for integration and all of that. So and my family's from South Carolina. My grandma was born in like 19, you know, 26 Greenville, South Carolina. Um, I grew up with her. You know, she would tell me about her experiences of racism in South Carolina and the Klan. I would go down to South Carolina. I would see that flag. So that was just something that we always knew about, you know, and it was just like, it was just this thing that always permeated the atmosphere down there. And then in the year 2000, they moved the flag from the dome of the Capitol. So it was like originally flying over the dome, you know, like with the American flag and everything. They moved it to the state house grounds so of the pole that I ended up, you know, scaling it and, and taking it down from. Um, and at that point, they passed a law that the flag couldn't be lowered for any reason unless there was a two thirds approval in the state house. So, I mean, like, you know, making it virtually impossible. So then once we get to 2015 and we have the incident, you know, you were describing this horrific uh, shooting in the church that was like, you know, a throwback to like the 1963 bombing in Birmingham. You know, I mean, it was just that kind of like shock um, in response to that kind of violence. You had, you know, Clementa Pinckney, he's the the pastor of of Emanuel AME. He's also um, a state senator in South Carolina. So there was this moment where they were like processing his casket through the streets in the Capitol, you know, because he's a, a, a state senator and they've got the United States flag lowered to have stabbed the state flag of South Carolina, but the Confederate flag still at the top of the pole. And it was just kind of like this moment that represented everything we had been talking about, you know, when, when folks started chanting Black Lives Matter, right? 
um, just the fact that there was such disregard and disrespect um, for for black people and for black lives and for everything that we had been experiencing. The fact that at that point in time, there was more concern over the flag, right? Like this, this Confederate flag, um, protecting that flag, than addressing what had led a white supremacist. He was 20 in his early 20s, raised in South Carolina, right? What were the conditions that led to him becoming who he was and doing what he did, right? Instead of talking about that, we're going to focus on the flag. And so that was the circumstance under which I, I got together with um, a group of, of activists I had been working with for a while. And we were just plotting, like, how can we take it down? You know, how can we take this down? Because to us, that was the exact kind of situation that calls for direct action. You know, and in this case, we wanted to use nonviolent direct action to really draw a moral contrast between what had happened in Charleston and what I was doing, right? So in Charleston, you had this white supremacist go into a church, shoot unarmed people, right? And then run away. Here, I was going to scale the pole, which I had to scale the pole because of the way that they had designed the flag. You couldn't get, get it down any other way. <laughs> they had like taken so many steps, to, like protect this flag and make it hard to get down. Um, so I would scale the pole, you know, in broad daylight, and just really kind of show this defiance, right, of the state of South Carolina, of white supremacy, um, of terrorism, that we're not going to be terrorized in this way. Um, and we're going to show show defiance. And, and just the fact that, you know, they kept saying, oh, yeah, gosh, you know, we've got to figure out what we can do. We'll keep debating whether or not, you know, we can take the flag down. Like, no, we're not going to wait on you um, to decide that our lives matter. We're going to go ahead and, and take the flag down. And we recognize, like, how powerful an image that would be to see a black woman, to see someone who was descended from people who had been enslaved in South Carolina commit an act like that. You know, we wanted it to be revolutionary. We wanted to create that kind of, of image of directly challenging white supremacist systems. You know, for folks who are listening, um, I can tell you when I saw that, that meant so much to me. I think at that time, I think I knew of you. I didn't think I, I knew you at that time um, it was interesting because for folks who I mean, don't know, I was uh, I had went to Howard uh, School of Divinity, and Bree's father was my dean. It was Dean Newsom? <laughs> That's what I used to think. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was Dean. Dean Newsom was there, and um, and so you know I, the dots connected, and I realized, well, that's uh, that's Dean Newsom's daughter. Climbing that flagpole <laughs> and uh, <laughs> getting it in, and uh, so that was that was amazing. And I just wanted to tell you, for me, I I think I told you this probably numerous times now, but man, that that was a blessing. And I guess, how do you feel now when you see that like Mississippi is now removing the Confederate symbol from their flag, and obviously there are many of those in the move for Black Lives who are pushing for Confederate monuments to be removed and taken down all over this country. Yeah, there in North Carolina, um, NASCAR has uh, banned uh, the bringing Confederate flags. How do you feel now, I guess, looking back on what you did up until this moment? You know, it's amazing. And I, I remember, you know, we were in Charlottesville together earlier this year. And I remember asking you if you saw the work. I can't remember exactly how I framed it to you, but, you know, is it political or spiritual? And you were saying both, right? And and I really feel it's both because on 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 one hand, to me, it is spiritual. It's a spiritual battle against evil, right? And I think that monuments of the Confederacy, these are idolatrous symbols in my view, right? 
And I know that I prayed before I committed to scale the pole in South Carolina. I really do believe that that was a calling for me in that moment um, to, to perform that act. I feel like that act is so much bigger than me, you know, um, I, I really do feel like that was God using me in a moment to make a statement. And so to see all of these monuments and symbols continue to fall, I just praise God because I just see it as the work of God. And, you know, I feel like for everybody who can see it, they see it. Um, and you, you recognize the power and you recognize that, you know, God is reminding all of us that none of these things last forever. Right. And that the power of God and, and the truth of love and the spirit of Christ is greater than, than all of the evils of this world. Um, from from a from a like you know more political uh, stance, I just I just think it, it again speaks to um, the power of ideas, right? Um, and 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 the the fact that again things change. You know, you asked me at the beginning of this conversation if I have hope, and I do have hope because again, when I look at the past, I, I know that change is possible, and we see change happening now. And I mean, I'm like everybody else who's impatient with the pace of change. Like change can't happen quickly enough for me. Um, but at the same time, we have to pause and recognize the importance of these watershed moments. Mississippi changing its flag is significant. NASCAR banning the Confederate flag is is significant. Um, and these are the types of things that, you know, precede like the deeper systemic change, um, you know, that obviously we have to keep pushing for. Um, but the fact that that this is happening shows that there's a shifting in the culture. Um, so I'm really encouraged by all of it. I, I just think it's amazing um, to, to see it continue to happen. You know, I took the flag down five years ago. And, and the fact that now we see all of these things happening in 2020 is a reminder to me that we can't give up. Like, you have to keep pressing. You know, there's all these issues that we're talking about now, whether it's, it's housing or climate change or um, policing, right? And right now, it just seems like we are just like in the trenches, just like pushing, pushing and not getting much change. but it could be that, you know, next year or however soon, we don't know, there could be this rapid change, you know, this this precipitous change. So we can't give up like and there is power in taking a stand um, as best as you can as an individual in a moment, because you never know how the reverberating impact, you know, of what you do, how, how far stretching that could be. And it has just been amazing to me to like see the reverberating impacts. I've, I've had people, you know, contact me, continue to contact me like over the years, people I've never met, never had interactions with, you know, but they saw what I did that day and it has inspired them to do something, you know? So you, you can never underestimate the power that you have as an individual. No, that's, that's powerful, Brian. And thank you again for that, you know, and throughout history, we have seen how those how those symbols mean so much. We we saw it in the '68 Olympics um, with John Carlos and Tommy Smith when they put their fist in the air. We've seen it with um, many many times with the movement for Black Lives in many different cities. We've seen with you that that iconic image of you holding the flag in one hand and holding on to the pole, we, we've seen it. And I, and I think that symbolism has a, will actually spur a new generation of, of, of activists. But we've also seen that people have been threatened um, when they make these acts. Um, and their lives have been, have been taken. Black activists who fight uh, for liberation are literally vulnerable to being hurt. I, I will tell you, you know, in a few days from now, we will celebrate um, and commemorate. So we will celebrate the fact that we have overcome 
the fact Hurricane Katrina is 15 years, but then we will also commemorate the fact that we lost almost 1,900 people when Hurricane Katrina hit. And for many, for many of us, we have been fighting that battle ever since for the past 15 years, not only the battle for Katrina, but every other storm, particularly how it impacts people of color, indigenous people um, on the front lines who are most impacted by the climate crisis. I bring that up because, and I, and I, and I say this, you know, I know my mom listens to this show. And so there are many things that I don't say publicly. I intentionally, as you probably understand this too, as well, when you have your parents or your loved ones or your whoever listening, they don't know everything that comes at you. And sometimes you keep things secret. But one of the things there is that right after uh, Hurricane Katrina hit, we marched um, on the bridge where people were stopped. And people who, who don't know, the after people were in the convention center um, and they were in Superdome, they were trying to get to higher ground and to get the food. And they were going over the Crescent City Connection Bridge and other bridges to get out of downtown New Orleans. And in that, they were met with guns and dogs on the bridge and turned around. And many of our, many in that moment, there were many seniors who were in wheelchairs who literally died on that bridge. Um, many people, was, it was in the heat. I was at the end of August and the heat was in the 90s. And so many people died and they had been, had been a, you know, there for many, many days. And the police department, um, particularly one area, Gretna, which is a city outside of New Orleans, particularly stopped them from coming into their city. Uh, I think that in 2005, when Hurricane Katrina hit, we saw literally firsthand, um, literally the lives of black people not being respected or valued. So in that, uh, I, you know, being an activist, um, went and decided to cross that bridge. Um, Hurricane Rita had, this week, we had plenty to do it right after, um, not too far after in September, and then Rita came and hit. We had to wait until November 7th. And as I was getting ready to cross that bridge, a lot of media had come up. I actually was there with then Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney and big shout out to the Nation of Islam, who literally, I don't know how they did it, but they sent these brothers to protect me. I mean, when I got off the, when I got off the plane um, in a very vacant uh, MSW, which is New Orleans Airport, um, they were they were there. Um, but when I got to literally the only hotel that was available at that time after the storm, um, I somehow, you know, I don't think anybody knew I was there, but I got a call literally the day before of saying, if you cross that bridge, uh, we're going to kill you. Um, and, you know, that was, I was like, man. And then, you know, I had to really think about that. At that time, my, my boys were both very small and, I was their primary caretaker and realized that 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 my life would be on the line. And and I never forget it because when the next day when we did the march, uh, Mama D, uh, Diane French Cole, who no longer with us, was there and was powerful. And so many other people um, who were there, um, uh, Dr. Ron Daniels was there uh, and people had came. We had all these LSU students. And we and we crossed that bridge, but um, I never forget thinking that man, that may be my last day because I realized later on, um, because we had to call it in because obviously it went to me and to Councilman McKinney that also the FBI got involved. That it was literally somebody who probably worked for the actual police department um, who probably was doing that and and messaging and all kind of things like that, or was in that connection. And so it it stunned me. 
it stunned me at that moment um, to be to be in that to be have your life threatened. Um, my question to you is that you're very vocal. I know that when you actually were climbing the pole, they were willing to do use the stun gun, which could have electrocuted a metal pole, which could have hurt you or or killed you on that day. Um, and ever since then, you've been speaking out. You also have felt the wrath of folks who want to silence you. One, do you feel safe? And how do you feel about literally doing this movement, knowing that tomorrow ain't guaranteed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, my, my experience has kind of been similar. You know, when I was in jail and I was able to make a phone call to my family. And I remember one of the things my mom said to me was how, you know, they supported what I did. She said, um, but we just don't want another martyr, you know? And I mean, you know, obviously my mom is one of those people, she lived through, you know, the 60s. She saw, you know, all of the assassinations and things that happened. She remembers um, her neighbor's house being blown up. Um, she was in Charlotte during the civil rights movement and somebody's house got blown up there. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, I'm aware of all of that. I think one, I, yes, I would say I feel relatively safe, but I'm also not sure what safe means. You know, I think that safety is possibly an illusion, you know, to, to a large extent, like, is anybody really safe? You know, um, one minute we seem to be safe, but then here we're dealing with the pandemic, you know? So it, it's kind of like, if one crisis of, of white supremacy doesn't get you, it'll be another, you know? Um, the, I, am I safe? I don't know. I mean, potentially, I mean, I could go out today and be pulled over by the wrong police officer. Right. Um, and that could end any kind of way. Um, so, and then the other thing that I think about as well is how silence doesn't protect us. You know, I think about how there's so many people, if you think about all of the, let's just think about police brutality victims, right? So many of these people who were killed, they weren't doing anything, going to a store, sitting in their home, um, you know, uh, they weren't speaking out. They weren't activists. They didn't volunteer to be martyrs, uh, you know, or, or to become like the, the name for a cause to have their names on banners or any of that. Um, and it doesn't protect them. Uh, and so I think, you know, when I reflect on that, I feel like if there is going to be such a thing as safety. Like if there is going to be such a day where, where we can really say, yes, we are safe and secure. Uh, we, yes, we really do have protections. Yes, we don't have to worry about, you know, living under a government or a power structure that is constantly, you know, doing us harm either directly or indirectly, you know, um, either on purpose or, or just by general neglect. Um, then the only way to really get there is to speak out. The only way to get there is to not be silent. Right. Because we see what happens when when we are silent, um, when we when we're silent, we just suffer in silence and people just act like nothing is wrong at all. Um, and so I think that that is what you know, in those times when I do feel, you know, some trepidation about speaking out, I think that is what compels me to keep doing it because I don't feel like silence keeps us safe. Well, I, I want to start with let me let me actually I want to get back to that. But I want to start with this question. So and as we get it back on that on that train. A thought. Um, so, you know, Bree, in removing these symbols, how can we be sure to not just replace the symbols, but truly address the white supremacist ideology they, they re represent? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that is essential, right? So, how do I put this? Like, 
I think co-optation is always going to happen, right? <laughs> like, and, and one of the things that I always say is like, if the political establishment of the powers that be are not trying to co-opt your struggle, then that's not a good sign in a way, because that means that you're not making an impact, right? So what I see happening now is even as, you know, folks continue to take down statues on their own, you know, kind of like out of rebellion, we also see this move from the political establishment, you know, to paint murals and, you know, rename things and have like official processes for, you know, taking things down. And the state of South Carolina engaged right away in a process of co-opting, you know, how the flag came down and trying to rewrite the whole narrative, you know, uh, you know, Nikki Haley led the way, <laughs> you know, it was like was like the narrative that they tried to come up with um, after I took the flag down. They had like their official flag lowering ceremony. So I think that we just have to be very vigilant and very careful that we don't allow the power establishment to say, OK, we've taken down all the monuments. Now we've solved racism. Let's, you know, just get back to business as usual. Um, and that we just like really force a process of education and interrogation around why were these things erected in the first place? Like, what do they represent? Um, how are they representative of the racist policies and, you know, power dynamics that are in place today? And how do we dismantle those things just like we're dismantling the statues? Um, because even though it's, you know, it's great, like I, like I said, I think it's great that Mississippi's taking the Confederate flag out of their, you know, state flag. It's great that the Confederate flag is no longer at the Capitol building in South Carolina, but we know racism is still in Mississippi. We know racism is still in South Carolina, right? Um, and so we have to just like be really vigilant about making sure that the conversation doesn't just stop at symbols and that we're really dismantling systems. Hmm. Let me let me shift gears a little bit because I think that one of the things about you that people may or may not know besides what you said earlier quite well, as you obviously you are a human rights activist, that's clear by what you're doing, but you're also an artist and you're a filmmaker. And, and so I think that's an important thing for many people who are, are confused at how that gets you into this political lane. So talk about why cultural culture is important to really, really to use one's cultural expression to shape one's political experience. Oh yeah, I mean, it definitely. Like I, I, you know, it's almost hard for me to remember now. But like when I first really kind of jumped feet first into the modern movement, it was it was really getting involved with Moral Mondays. This was like back in the summer of 2013, and at that point, I don't remember consciously kind of making this decision, but there definitely was somewhere in my mind where I was kind of like, you know what? There's so much going on around me. I just want to put like my artistic pursuits to the side because I had been, you know, trying to pursue being a filmmaker and very, you know, just very focused on, you know, trying to make headway um, in the industry. And I think there was a point where I was kind of like, let me put all of that on the back burner and, and just focus on fighting for change. And now I've kind of come full circle to a point where I realize like how essential cultural production and, you know, art and creativity and all of those things are to shaping ideas. <laughs> you know, um, there's a reason why uh, the film, the film industry and arts industry has its own issues with racism and, you know, and, and lack of diversity and, and all of those things, because those are very powerful mediums. Um, the newspaper, uh, television news, film, radio, like those are very powerful 
mediums in shaping people's understanding of the world. And in fact, like a lot of the racist ideas that people are operating with today are really traced back to like 20th century film. You know, like the first Hollywood blockbuster was Birth of a Nation, you know, the film glorifying the Ku Klux Klan. Um, so we can't, we can't, uh, we can't overstate, I think, the power of, of culture. And I, I don't know that you can really separate culture and politics. You know, uh, people use this term culture wars, you know, like when they're kind of like describing what's going on. But it's kind of weird to me how they say that as though the culture wars is one thing that exists separately from other politics, right? Like they, they frame it as though there's this like higher level politics that we should be engaging in other than culture war. But the thing is, it's always been a culture war. Like it's always been a culture war between white supremacy and everybody else's cultures, you know? Um, And so I think there's a power in us being really conscious of that and being conscious of like how we are um, using this moment, using our resources to, to create our own things that, that really foster the culture and really foster the ideas that we are, are fighting for ultimately, whether that's, you know, documentary or um, songs, you know, uh, obviously you can't under, understate the, or overstate rather, the power of protest music. You know, like we know that. Um, and, and so I think it's just a matter of like really being conscious of that and, and, and just using those things um, more deliberately. Now, you received your uh, degree, your BFA in film and television uh, from NYU, uh, uh, New York University, prestigious Tisch School of the Arts. And as a filmmaker, you received this a wide range of critical attention and awards, including the 2010 National Board of Review uh, Student Film Award and the Best Short Film in BET Urban World Film uh, Festival. And so... Are you inspired by what you are seeing right now in 2020? Um, One thing I've said is in the music side that when the movement is strong, the music is strong. But when the movement is weak, the music is weak. How do you feel about this moment? Is, is Is the art reflecting the activism? I think so. Like, I'm actually really excited for what's happening right now. Like, I think we could be seeing another, you know, kind of like Black arts movement, like what we got in the 70s, you know. Um, And I'm really excited to, like, be a part of it. I really want to contribute to it. I'm I'm working on a documentary right now, actually, called They Tried to Bury Us, um, following, following the events that's happening in North Carolina and, you know, kind of like what the resistance movement looks like here. Um... And, and I mean, I, I, I do think that there, there's kind of like a back and forth. I think that, you know, art impacts and influences life and life impacts and, and influences art. And you have definitely seen that, you know, in recent, in recent years, like you've definitely seen the impact um, of the movement, a lot of great documentaries being made, um, a lot of these ideas and topics working their way into film. The uh, film that I won the awards for was my short film in college called Wake, which was um, like a horror, like Southern Gothic horror film with an all black cast. And even at the time that I made it, that was like really kind of out of the norm. And like a lot of people were, you know, they responded positively to it um, because people didn't really see that. Like, you know, a, a horror film with like an all black cast, you know, said like 1930s North Carolina, just like very, just kind of like out there in terms of the genre. And now I'm like so excited for everything that's happening with like black sci-fi horror. We've got Lovecraft Country, you know, coming out on HBO. 
Um, you have, you know, Jordan Peele doing Get Out. There's like these really powerful um, things that are being done where, where Black artists are like, are taking on genres, right? That, that we are not always given access to or traditionally have not been given access to and putting like a specifically Black lens on it. You know, um, that's the other thing that has been really dope to me about Ava DuVernay as a director. Like I remember when I first became aware of her, um, one of the things that she said was that she did not want to be, like she specifically did not want to be a filmmaker who happened to be Black. She was like, I am a Black filmmaker. <laughs> like I am, I am unapologetic about using my lens and using, you know, my platform a- as a director um, to to talk about Black issues and Black stories, you know? And I think that there's a real power in that. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about before, like just the consciousness, right, of like how we are creating culture in this moment. Because I think there was kind of like a period we went through where it was kind of like, you know, um, we saw progress as, like she said, like being a filmmaker who just happened to be black. Right. Um, but that's not, that's not really conscious and that's not really responsive to the reality that we're living in, you know? And I think what we're getting more now is kind of like this conscious art that is really about responding to what is on people's minds and hearts right now. Well, I have a couple, couple more questions for you, Bree. And one is actually just something that you can help me with. Um, as you know, at the hip hop caucus, we have been working on a platform called think, 100% 100% Climate is a media platform that works on activism, on podcasts. Uh, it works on film and music. And in our film, we've been working on a number of documentaries to put out through that. And so the, it isn't so much on the films and what we're putting out, but it's on what we've already put out. And I kind of want to ask you a question why this may have happened. So we, we put out a climate album. Um, with the people like Neo and Common and Anthony Smith and Crystal Waters, all these amazing artists were on it. It was predominantly people of color. I think it was maybe eighty to ninety percent people of color who were who were on the album. Who we intentionally could we wanted to help broaden the movement. But what we realized is that when we put that out there, and we had we had to partner with Apple and. Apple put on their homepage and we had this amazing, you know, turnout of folks getting it. But when we had the numbers, we saw that the climate movement, even though it was a climate album, didn't think that a black, an album that had predominantly people of color on it was for them. And we've seen that in a number of our documentaries we've been trying to create. And so my question to you is this. Is the progressive movement a siloed, segregated movement that literally has its own culture that it wants to see for its success? So I think that I think that race is the defining politic of America. And I think that a lot of times folks try to make that the side issue and it's not, you know, it's not, well, folks will, folks will try to categorize things like there's the environment, there's, you know, policing, there's education, there's voting rights, and then there's race, you know, and no race is the through line in all of those things. And like the fact that, and I mean, I'm saying this from just my own experience and coming into an awareness, I used to see issues of the environment as white. You know, those are kind of like predominantly white issues. I would picture environmentalists as being like, you know, the folks who are out hugging trees and, you know, talking about doing all these other things. And 
it wasn't until, you know, in recent years that I really came to understand climate change and really understand environmental justice and understand that the, the communities that are being most immediately impacted by these issues are black and brown and indigenous communities, you know? And so, and so even the fact that somehow that the, the idea that having uh, a black face on those issues, right, would be antithetical uh, uh, to the understanding of the environmental movement, it, it, again, speaks to like the, the dividing line of race. And I think that's what the silo is. You know, I think we see that a lot in progressivism and, you know, so-called leftism and, and all of these things is that um, you can have all those, you know, politics that, you know, on the, on the paper look liberal or leftist or progressive, but there's still, race is still the, defi- the, the dividing line. Um, you know, people point this out time and time and again in places like uh, Oregon, right? <laughs> like so, some of the places that are like seen as being the most, you know, quote unquote progressive have major issues around race and, and excluding black people. Um, and so I think that we have, I think that's why it's so important to really center anti-racism and how we make that an issue and a component of every other issue. Like we can't talk about education without talking about anti-racism. We can't talk about climate change without talking about anti-racism. We can't talk about gun violence without talking about anti-racism. And we have seen that a lot in recent years where they ha- there has been this effort to make the face of the activism be a white face on an issue that is disproportionately impacting black and brown people. You know, um, And so I think we have to just keep forcing the issue. And we have to acknowledge and we have to force white people to acknowledge that they are racist. Like, like just because you are progressive, just because you vote Democrat, uh, just because you are a socialist or whatever, does not mean that you are immune to white supremacy and racism, because that's how pervasive white supremacy is in, in people's understanding of the modern world. You know, that's Bree Newsom artists and human rights activists, and she is our guest today, and she is phenomenal. Bree, where can people find you? Where can they find out about your new projects? How can they support you? Uh, give them that information. Yes. So um, as was mentioned before, you can find me on Twitter at Bree Newsome. That's at B-R-E-E-N-E-W-S-O-M-E. And you can also visit my website, BreeNewsome.com. I have a contact form on there if you want to get in touch with me. I'm actually revamping my site right now and I'll have, um, I'll keep updating people on the projects and things that I'm working on. So you can check me out there too. Well, Bree, please stay safe. Um, And uh, I look forward to seeing you both in the streets and the suites. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a nonprofit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people.